This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest today is an acclaimed chef from North Carolina, and thanks to her hit PBS program, A Chef's Life, the first woman since Julia Child to win a Peabody Award for culinary broadcasting. Over her career, she's found that the ways Southern food traditions are passed down are just as important as the food itself. That's the way that so many of these like rural recipes are. They're so simple and so mundane that you know people never even wrote them down. There's so many things that are kind of cornerstones of rural culture that no one's ever thought to really celebrate. Five-time James Beard Award semifinalist Vivian Howard is the restaurateur behind Chef and the Farmer, which opened in 2006 in the little town of Kinston, North Carolina, and has remained one of the most influential and celebrated restaurants in the South. Another PBS show of Vivian's is Somewhere South, a culinary exploration of how Southeast Asian, Hispanic, and other communities are redefining Southern food. Here's a clip from the show's trailer. What I found in the South is that food tells us where we came from, where we landed, and what we did when we got there. It's Southern Chinese American. (laughs) I grew to love the South and grew to claim it. Wherever I've been before, this is home. On today's show, Vivian talks about her latest book, what brought her back to Eastern North Carolina after years in New York City, and the unique experience of both opening and closing a restaurant during the pandemic. Plus, collard kraut, Tom Thumb nachos, and much more today on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Vivian Howard, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. Before we start, I just want to say I've just been a fan of yours for a long time, and you've got a lot of fans at Southern Living. And I think that the first time we met very briefly was at a Southern Foodways Alliance lunch that you hosted like 10 years ago. It was in Oxford, and the theme was, uh, I think, women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I cooked the Tabasco lunch that year, yes. And we filmed it for a chef's life. Right. What was already a stressful, you know, opportunity was doubly stressful because anytime you add cameras to something, it's additional pressure. Yeah. Well, the lunch was fantastic. It really made an impression. And I don't know how you pulled it off, but you sure did. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) That lunch for chefs for a long time, that was like, a golden opportunity, you know, because so many like food writers and food lovers go to that conference. And so to be able to cook that lunch was like uh, one of the things that if I had a resume, I would put at the top of it. (laughs) Yeah. But a lot of pressure because you're cooking for your peers, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I literally worked on that lunch for maybe four months. I remember there was this (laughs) pickle relish on top of a Tom Thumb sausage And we made the Tom Thumb sausages and hung them for like 60 days. And then I made this like watermelon rind relish to go on top. And I I cut 
I cut all of it by hand for 400 people. And the relish had these little diamonds that I meticulously cut. It was a great example of like when you're really prepared and you give something, everything you've got, it can be really successful. I've never been more prepared for something probably in my life. Well, it was a very special lunch and I still remember it 10 years later. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted to start by just asking you about growing up in Deep Run, North Carolina and what that was like for you. So I am the youngest of four girls and the sister closest to my age is nine years older than I am. So I was like a, a major accident. When I came around, you know, my mom had already kind of I think felt as if she had done most of her parenting and I kind of lived to entertain all the other people in my house. When you're the nine years younger than the person closest to your age, you become the entertainment. And that's that's really what I remember. My dad farmed tobacco. And so our summers were centered around that because my sisters babysat me. I would end up at the tobacco barns with them um, helping I guess that's in air quotes. One of my first memories is just wanting to to leave and to move. I desperately wanted to live in a city and like order Chinese takeout and have somebody bring it to my door. Well, you found a place where, where that happens, which is New York City, which couldn't be more different from Deep Run, right? Yes. In college, I had an internship at CBS Sunday Morning. And so I moved to New York for a summer and I decided immediately, like, I, I have to live here. I'm going to move here and I'm going to kick Katie Couric out of her Today Show chair. That's going to be my path. But I I moved there, but I I didn't get anywhere near Katie Couric. So So when did the farm start to feel small to you? Or when did you start to have this kind of desire to, to leave? Did that start at an early age? Yeah, you know, I don't ever remember not having that desire. One of my sisters went to an all-girls boarding school in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I just remember thinking, okay, Curry left when she was 14. I can leave when I'm 14 if I get really good grades and I can go to this boarding school. I always had like big dreams and I just didn't see them uh, being realized in tiny little deep run. So you go to New York and you were there for... Pretty long time. Yeah, about six years. And you get this invitation from your dad to move back to Deep Run and open a restaurant, right? Kind of, yes. I had a little soup business uh, with my now husband, and we made soup and delivered it around the city. And this was like 20 years ago. So we were way ahead of our time with our meal delivery system. And our little soup business had taken off and we had investors who wanted to help us open an actual storefront because at this point we were making the soup in our apartment and chilling it down in the bathtub. And so we were going to, you know, open a legit place. And my family, when I told them that, they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We never thought that you would actually put down actual roots in New York. Uh, So we want to do everything we can to encourage you to come back to North Carolina. And the understanding that I had was that my family would help us open a restaurant anywhere in North Carolina that we wanted to do it. But once back in Deep Run, it became really clear that we could open a restaurant anywhere inside this 10,000 square foot building my family had already purchased in downtown Kinston. So (laughs) um, there was some strategy there for sure. (laughs) Well, it seems like it worked. 
It did. It did. And I have to say that, you know, I never saw myself living uh, in Deep Run again, but like living across the road from my parents has afforded me the opportunity to, to do so many things that I would not have been able to do if I hadn't been close to family. So I'm so grateful to, that I made that decision or that my parents made it for me. Well, Vivian, tell me about those first few months when you moved back. I mean, that had to be pretty shocking in a lot of ways, even though you grew up there, just to sort of go from New York to such a small town. Was that tough for you? At first, it was not. In fact, I mean, I was so tired of like the grind that is New York City that I moved to um, Jones County, North Carolina, which is actually even less populated than where I live now uh, and lived in my dad's kind of we call him, call it his nap shack. If he hunted, it would be his hunting cabin. But uh, moved in there literally uh, almost off the grid. And for the first several months, everything seemed, you know, I think I saw uh, Eastern North Carolina through rose-colored glasses, like all the food at the food line, the produce. I mean, it looked amazing. And uh, so it wasn't until a, a little later that that new started to wear off and I saw how how much Eastern North Carolina had changed since I moved away. Tobacco was no longer uh, the cash crop that it once was. A lot of the textile industry had moved on and there had basically been like a, a massive brain drain of Eastern North Carolina, meaning like if you could leave, you did. And the symptoms of that really started to show about three or four months after I moved. Yeah, so it was an adjustment for sure. Yes, yes. And it, you know, it continues to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Vivian, you have this passion for cooking that is so deep. And yet I've heard you say that your parents were not so into cooking when you were growing up. Where do you think that came from? So my mom had uh, and still has rheumatoid arthritis uh, since she was 16. And so she always saw cooking as a burden. And my dad, I don't think he's ever turned on a a stove. So (laughs) (laughs) cooking was not something that was a source of enjoyment in my house, but we we certainly all love to eat. You know, that's that's how we socialize. That's how we share. You know, when we're eating one meal, we talk about what we're going to eat for the next. Uh, and my maternal grandmother was a, a very good cook, but she had no interest in having me in the kitchen with her. You know, she was no nonsense in there to get a job done. And so I really came to cooking as a means to turn that experience into a career in food writing. I was a server at a restaurant in the West Village called Voyage. And the chef, uh, his name's Scott Barton, he was a, a masterful storyteller. And the food that we served at this restaurant was Southern food via Africa. And so it was kind of like kismet that I landed in this restaurant as a server because I was just so inspired by the stories that Scott Barton told around the food that we were serving. And I was like, oh my God, okay, so I'm not going to be Katie Couric, but maybe I can pursue this dream of writing through something else I also love, which is food. And so I started working in the kitchen because of that and just found that I, I liked 
being in a kitchen, I liked the camaraderie of it, working toward a common goal. I uh, liked making stuff with my hands and I was good at it. And, you know, we all like to do things we're good at. Well, when did you kind of realize that this desire to be a storyteller was going to happen through food? I don't know that I even really thought that that was happening until we started making A Chef's Life. I couldn't quite navigate how to make it happen. You know, I started working in kitchens in New York and then just became really interested in becoming a better cook and and not embarrassing myself in the kitchen. (laughs) And so I just kind of put my head down and did that for many years. And that kind of aching desire to be a storyteller just never really went away. And after we opened Chef and the Farmer and had been open about four years, I just, I couldn't keep it down anymore. I couldn't swallow it. And so I I started looking around me for some stories to tell. And that's kind of how uh, all of this started. It started with collard kraut, honestly. Mm -hmm. Tell me that story. So... We were still living in Jones County in my dad's snap shack. And I woke up one morning and went to let my dog out. And there was this Ziploc bag on our doorstep that had these like dark leaves that were swimming in this kind of milky looking liquid. And I was like, what in the, what is that? My dog wouldn't even get near it because it smelled. And so I called my dad because that's what I do whenever, you know, Eastern North Carolina asks me a question that I can't answer. And... (laughs) I was like, These, someone is trying to poison me. I don't know what this is. And he's like, no, Vivian, that's, that's a gift. It's collard kraut. Like your neighbors up the, up the road make that. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I, at the time, I was reading Sandor Katz's book, The Art of Fermentation. And it was the, the thing that every like cutting edge chef, which is what I wanted to be, was reading. And so the idea that like, the geezers down the road from me in Jones County were making kraut with collards. And I was reading The Art of Fermentation. It just blew my mind. And so I was like, oh my God, I have got to to be with these people that are making this. I've got to learn about this. And so I, I went to my neighbors and I said, oh, thank you so much for this kraut. I would really love to, to make it with you to see how you do it. And they're like, okay, great. You We'll do it next year, right around Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I want to do this now. <laughs> and they were like, we only do it once a year. You know, you you have to make sure that the moon, the Farmer's Almanac says the moon and the stars are not in the sign of the bowels. And, you know, women can't make the kraut. So you'll have to stand like outside of here because women taint it. And I was like, oh my God, what is, this is so wild, all of this folklore surrounding this kraut making. So I waited a year and I went and and watched them make kraut and was just so energized and inspired by it. I wrote the first thing I had written since college, which was a blog about making collar kraut. And when you, you know, when you write a blog and you don't have any followers, you're really just writing yourself an email. But <laughs> nevertheless, I was like, oh my God, there's something here. There's stories to be told. And so that's how that happened. And I just like dug my heels in and called a friend from childhood and asked, she's a filmmaker, Cynthia Hill, and said, hey, I want to make this documentary about food traditions of Eastern North Carolina. Will you help me? And she said, yeah. 
And little did I know she was far more interested in me than the food traditions of Eastern North Carolina. So we made a good pair, a good team. Well, there are just so many stories in that part of the South, and it must have been such an amazing discovery to realize, you know, oh my God, nobody's really told a lot of these stories. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Mills brothers, the men that I went and watched to make Kraut, uh, you know, they they couldn't even fathom why I would be interested in what they were doing, you know, and that's the way that so many of these like rural recipes are. They're so simple and so mundane that, you know, people never even wrote them down. There's so many things that are kind of cornerstones of rural culture that no one's ever thought to really celebrate. And that's, you know, what we were able to do on A Chef's Life. And neither Cynthia nor I knew the power of it until we tapped into it. We'll continue with the great chef Vivian Howard after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, This slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with chef, author, and TV personality, Vivian Howard. So Vivian, now you're two books in, right? You just came out with your second book, which I want to ask you about. It's called This Will Make It Taste Good. Mm -hmm. And it's very different from your last book which I think was very intentional. And I was reading the introduction and you made a pretty bold statement in the intro where you said, you will emerge both kitchen magician and domestic God. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to tell me about that. Um, Well, you know, as you said, this book is really, really different from Deep Run Roots, which uh, Deep Run Roots, I think, from my perspective, was a love story about the food and ingredients of Eastern North Carolina. And this will make it taste good. Is really a lighthearted, fun book that is meant to kind of reshape the way you work in your kitchen. And so in the opening, I had to be really, really encouraging and almost forceful to get people on board to do this, you know, kind of next level meal prep. Maybe I wrote checks I couldn't cash with the kitchen magician and the domestic God, but you know, (laughs) not if you think so, not if you don't think so. (laughs) I think it's just a fantastic book. I love the way it's organized around these 10 kind of hero recipes. It just makes cooking seem very approachable and like something anybody can do. Absolutely. You know, I think for so long, 
people cooked without recipes. You made what your mom taught you to make. You made what you saw your grandmother make. Then, you know, in, you know, the 90s, 2000, we started watching food television and watching people measure everything, you know, accurately and and follow recipes to the, the nth degree. And I think a lot of us started thinking, wow, this is, I can't do this. You know, I don't have this ingredient or I don't have this piece of equipment or I don't have this much time. And so I think it got us out of the practice of just trusting our instincts and cooking food that tastes good to us. And so that's one of the things that I was really trying to do with this book is like say, hey, let's think about this a little differently. You've got these ingredients that you always buy when you go to the grocery store and let's figure out how to to use them in a different way. This is the way that I cook at home and it's very much informed by the way that we cook at Chef and the Farmer in that, you know, during the summer we get all kinds of produce and lots of it. And so we would pickle and preserve. And then in the fall and winter, I would pull from those pickles and preserves and briny things that we had put up and make our fall and winter food really exciting. And so then when I stopped cooking at the restaurant so much, I started taking these things from the restaurant to my home kitchen and they really became almost like my crutches. Like I, I, I can't cook at home without them. And I I started writing the second book with the idea that it would just be a simple cookbook. I've read the reviews of Deep Run Roots every single morning on Amazon for one year, <laughs> all the new reviews. And one of the things that kept coming up that I kept seeing was people wanted more simple recipes. So this book was going to be simple, like come hell or high water. And I was so bored. I'm like, this is not even how I cook. And at the end of that book, in my table of contents, I had a chapter called This Will Make It Taste Good. And it was like all the flavor heroes. And I made notes like, if you want to make the recipe on 145, page 145 tastes really good, make this thing. And so finally, I just said, you know what? I'm going to write the book that I want to write. And I flipped the whole idea on its head and made the book about that one chapter. Well, I've got to ask you about a specific recipe in this book, and it's not very highfalutin. It is uh, your nacho recipe. Oh, yeah. Um, And it sounds like it has a great story behind it, and I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So you're talking about nacho normal. Yeah. (laughs) And that's one of the really fun things about the book is that I, I gave everything a name, whatever I wanted it to be named, you know. And so nacho normal is, these are nachos that have cauliflower that's been cooked with community organizer on them. And the idea was inspired by my first book tour. We took a food truck around the South and for nine weeks, we served about 400 people a day out of this food truck. And I had this very elaborate menu planned that we were going to try and and cook all through the nine weeks. And about a week in, I was like, this is not working. This is too much work. And we're blowing through this food in a way that is wild to me. So I was like, okay, let's figure out how we can feed people and have them feel excited about it, but let's make it easier on ourselves. So Tom Thumb, the sausage that I mentioned before, was one of the things that we were planning on serving, but we were blowing through this Tom Thumb like no one ever has, literally. And so I thought, okay, let's make nachos. Let's make Tom Thumb nachos. And that will allow us to spread our Tom Thumb and our pickle relish and our preserved butter beans. That'll allow us to like spread it over a lot more meals. 
And everybody's like, okay, great idea. But I had never made nachos before. Like I'd had nachos at TGI Fridays, but I'd never actually put nachos together. But everyone was looking to me to be the nacho chef because I was the chef. And so I put our first round of nachos together and I had like six layers. It was like, you know, the first time I ever made pizza, more is more is more and until it's really not. I had a very sharp learning curve with the nacho thing. And so that's what this recipe and this will make it taste good is about. It tells that story and it gives you the appropriate ratio for building nachos. Would you consider yourself a uh, nacho expert now? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And domestic God and kitchen magician. (laughs) All right. I got to ask you about one more, and that is your gas station biscuits. What can you tell me about those? Oh, yeah. So in Eastern North Carolina, there is a cheese biscuit uh, tradition in that, you know, you make a, a biscuit you don't bake it, you stuff it with a knob of hoop cheddar or hoop cheese, and you bake the biscuit and the cheddar just kind of like melts out and forms like a lace crust around the edges. And it's just, it's heavenly. So this gas station biscuit recipe is meant to, you know, celebrate that very humble idea. And so these are biscuits that are stuffed with fontina and mayonnaise and Parmesan cheese and then little green dress. And it all bakes together. I believe I say in the book that it's better than pizza. (laughs) And maybe not that good for you, but it sure does look good. I don't want anybody to think that there's a bunch of just decadent recipes in the book. I would say that most of them are helpful because that's the way that I generally eat and, and the things that I try to feed my kids. That's very true. And and I'm sorry that I'm drawn to the more decadent ones. (laughs) No, they definitely stand out. (laughs) So Vivian, I want to turn to music for a second. And uh, just because this is Biscuits and Jam, and I want to ask you about another North Carolina treasure, and uh, that's the Avett Brothers. Yes, yes. I'm glad that I Someone I know, when you said music, I'm like, oh God, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to be talking about salt and pepper here. (laughs) Well, these guys, they are from North Carolina, of course. They did your theme song. They've been on your show. And I'm especially wondering about Joe Kwan, the cellist, and your relationship with him, because I think he's the one guy in that band that really loves to cook. Yes. And he's an excellent cook. I met Joe through the Raleigh food scene. He is such a, I hate the word foodie, but he is such a foodie. And um, one of the things that we talk about a lot is how no one else in the band is. They all like eat to live and he lives to eat. And so, you know, so much about touring for him is introducing the other guys to good food and just trying to get them on on board with like, this is this can make your life so much better if you enjoy this. Uh, and his his wife is from Aden, which is about 30 minutes from where I live. And so- uh, Almost every, a very good barbecue. Absolutely, absolutely. So they, we have this Christmas tradition that Joe and Emily come to our house Christmas day 
after they've spent time with her family. And Joe will often bring, he has this little charcoal grill from Tokyo and he'll bring it and light the briquettes and then grill these little skewers of meat on there. And it's something I look forward to all year. And I have to then make something that competes with what Joe's making. (laughs) I'm like, gosh, Joe and Emily don't have children and, you know, it's Christmas, but I I can't be outdone. Yeah, he's got a little more time to focus on the cooking, maybe. Yes, that's what I'm sticking with. Vivian, I, I want to turn to the last year and, and what we've all been through. I just want to hear about your journey through this pandemic, and especially as a restaurant owner. You had to lay off more than 100 employees, I think, back when this all got started. I'm sure a lot of them feel like family to you. And I'm just wondering what you have kind of learned from that experience? Oh my gosh, so much. Yes, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we closed our two restaurants in Kinston. And shortly after that, I made the decision to permanently close one of them. And arguably the the restaurant that our town loved the most, the Boiler Room. Having, you know, two restaurants in a small town and always competing with ourselves for staff and for customers. And so the pandemic kind of allowed me to step back from all of that and say, okay, what do I want this all to look like on the other side of this? How can Chef and the Farmer be be stronger, be more successful, be less of a, a uh, stressful place to work. That's why I made the decision to not reopen the boiler room. It has been very painful letting people go and then also having the town kind of hate me <laughs> for, for closing it. But I am one of the few people, I think, that both closed and opened a new restaurant in the pandemic. I had this incredible opportunity to open a biscuit and hand pie shop and a, a sit-down restaurant in, uh, in Charleston, and it was all slated to happen in May. And we have put off opening Lenore, the sit-down restaurant, but in August, it, we, we had to do something. So we opened the, the biscuit and hand pie shop. And Opening a restaurant in a pandemic does not feel good. (laughs) And the uncertainty that surrounds it and, you know, the fact that, like, nobody is is caring about restaurants that are opening in a pandemic. It's like when a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, like, did it even happen? What I've learned through all of this is that as a, a chef and a restaurateur, I really need to figure out how to feed more people without having all those people have to be in my restaurant. How can we reach more people? How can we make better use of the kitchens that we have and the staff that we have so that our front of house and back of house employees have similar wages? How can working in a restaurant be a consistent living? How can it not feel incredibly stressful every single night? Those are the things that this moment in time 
has allowed me to step back and and look at and try to assess. I want to talk about your connection to your community, particularly at, at tough times. You know, when the hurricanes hit a couple of years ago, you've been through a fire, all sorts of things. Um, what do you think restaurants kind of owe to the community in terms of helping be a, a backbone when things go south? Our restaurants in our community have been a huge source of pride for the community. For me, it's been, you know, a, a great gift to be a, a part of that place that, you know, brings so much pride to other people. What can a restaurant provide for a community in hard times? What is our responsibility? I don't know, Sid. I, if you had asked me a year ago before all of this, I think I would have a much clearer answer. But what I have learned is that if a restaurant is an important thing for a town, people feel ownership over it. And so when you do something like close it, people feel like you've taken something from them that you know, they feel as if they had ownership over. And that's a, a feeling and a sentiment that I'm, I'm still very uncomfortable with because I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. Well, it's been amazing to me that even though restaurants have been some of the hardest hit businesses over the last year, it's restaurants and chefs who have stepped up and done so much to help people get through this. And, you know, I'm thinking of like Ed Lee's Lee Initiative yes. in Louisville and Chris Shepard's Southern Smoke Foundation and Jose Andres uh, with World Central Kitchen and so many other chefs and restaurateurs who are giving back at the local level. That's a remarkable thing to see. And it's something I think that's especially happening in the South. Yeah, you know, I mean... So many of us get into this business because we like doing things for people. We like cooking for people. We like making people happy. They don't call it the service business for nothing. You know, <laughs> once you're in the service business, you're always on that side of things, the, the giving, the raising up. Ed Lee, Jose Andres, Chris Shepard, they have been amazing examples of like how you can be struggling in your in your particular restaurant but you can still do so much more to to help your community and i mean i think that they are incredibly inspiring well as are you and and all the things that you've done to to give back to your community and just i don't know how you do it but <laughs> we're all pulling for you <laughs> oh, thank you thank you thank you well vivian i want to ask you about uh your show that you premiered last spring called Somewhere South. And it felt very timely because you were really exploring so many different cultures and celebrating the diversity of Southern food. What are some of the things that you learned on the journey of making that show? Oh my, making that show was really a dream come true. I had you know, we had made five seasons of A Chef's Life and I was so fatigued by my own story that I, I really wanted the opportunity to turn the lens outward and learn about the cultures and communities in my backyard, which is the American South. It was all loosely based around this idea that I've discussed with my editor over the years, which is 
uh, that there's really only about 20 dishes in the whole world. And every culture has their, you know, their hand pie, their way of cooking greens, their, their way of cooking over fire, their pickle. You know, we all, we all eat the same things. Um, and so that was the guiding principle of around somewhere south. And, and I knew that going into it, but I didn't know how it would manifest itself. And one of my favorite moments making that show was we were outside of Atlanta with an, an African woman, and she was going to cook this, this feast for us, this Sunday feast. And it was for the greens episode. So she was going to make cassava greens and I watched her pound them to death and cooking these greens took like several hours. And it reminded me so much of cooking collard greens with ham hock, which also takes like an uncanny amount of time. (laughs) And so, you know, from very early in the day when we're cooking together, she was cooking and I was washing, you know, I noticed little similarities like that. And then when we sat down to eat, it was like, okay, she's from Burundi and she's made nothing that I recognize here, but everything is recognizable. We had these greens that had been cooked to smithereens that were full of flavor. We had this, this meat that had been stewed for a long time and was also super flavorful and soft, like the meat that my mother would have cooked. Uh, and then she had made fufu to scoop up the greens and the meat. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just like cornbread. And we're using it in the exact same way. And so sitting around that table, I thought, wow, this is what I meant when I've been talking about how there's only 20 dishes in the world and how we all have our own version of it. I'm like sitting here at a table living that idea. So I had that experience over and over and over shooting somewhere South. Uh, It was amazing. Well, Vivian, what are you making for dinner tonight? That is a very good question. You know, we're here on Bald Head and the market closes at six. So I try to bring a lot of food down here. I have some ground beef left. So I might make, and this is not going to sound very exciting, but you know, I do have nine-year-old twins, uh, maybe some spaghetti. (laughs) Oh, okay. That sounds good. There's always nachos. There's always nachos. Always. (laughs) Well, Vivian Howard, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you so much for having me and for not making me talk about music too much. (laughs) (laughs) Come back sometime. I will. I will. Thank you so much, Sid. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Vivian Howard. Visit her website, VivianHoward.com, for social media, information on her restaurants, and her latest book, This Will Make It Taste Good, available in stores or online. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Matt Sav, Erica Wong, and Rachel King at Pod People. We'll see you back here next week for more Biscuits and Jam. Biscuits and Jam.